morning to you and a happy Memorial Day weekend to all of the, you who have joined us watching. My name is Pastor Dave. I serve as one of the pastors here at NBC, and it's a joy to come into your home. Uh, we'd like to take this moment to join our hearts in prayer together. So uh, wherever you find yourself right now, would you take a moment and just bow your heads, close your eyes with us as we uh, pray and ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you with a spirit of thanksgiving. Today we remember those who have paid a high price for the freedom that we enjoy uh, even in this very moment. And so we thank you for those who've given their time in military service, and we especially thank you uh, for those who have at times given their very lives for us to enjoy this freedom today. And for those of us here today who may have lost loved ones in war, I pray that you would bring them comfort. Uh, may we never forget those who've paid that price, and may you bless our time of remembrance this weekend as we appreciate the blessing of freedom. Uh, dear God, this is a difficult time for our nation, and we ask that you would give all of our leaders wisdom as they make important decisions during this pandemic. We ask that you would bring this to a swift end by your mighty power, and until then, help us all not to squander our days, but to give us a greater capacity for doing the right thing, for service to one another, and for loving our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Very good. So grab your Bible. Now's our time in the Word of God. We're going through the second half of the book of Romans, and uh, today we find ourselves in chapter 12. And uh, as you're turning there to that place in your scriptures, uh, let me begin with this true but humorous story. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the legendary Supreme Court Justice, had quite a reputation for being a brilliant but yet an absent-minded man. Uh, one time he was on a train trip traveling out of Washington, D.C., and the judge was studying for a pending case when the conductor came by and uh, demanded to see his ticket. At this point, he began to fumble through his pockets and to look around for uh, this ticket, but he just couldn't find it, and uh, the embarrassment began to, to mount with every second. Uh, that's when the conductor uh, mercifully said, uh, Mr. Holmes, uh, we know who you are. Don't worry about it. Uh, why don't you just send us the price for the ticket at your convenience? And that's when the judge shook his head and said, my good man, you don't seem to understand the problem. The question is not whether I'll pay the fare. The question is, where am I going? May I ask you a question? As a follower of Jesus, uh, do you know where you are going? Do you know where you're going on this journey of discipleship? Uh, spiritual formation author Robert Mulholland uh, calls the spiritual life an invitation to a journey. We are, we are headed somewhere. Oftentimes I hear Christians talk about, do you know where you would go if you would die tonight? And, and that's a, a legitimate question, but uh, the question more often that the New Testament asks us is, do you know what you would do if you don't die tonight? Uh, do you know how you would occupy your time in, in this life for the glory of God? And one of the things I've realized as a pastor is when it comes to the path of discipleship, uh, we really have quite a bit of confusion going on about this. The gospel, though, it leads us somewhere, and the book of Romans has been leading us somewhere. We learned last time that it's leading us to this process of transformation. Uh, that's why we call this second half of the series through Romans, Behold New Life, because that word transformation means a metamorphosis, that there's, there's new life in Christ available for us. 
that Christ has sent us on this mission, and, and it's not merely about getting people to heaven when they die. It's about making disciples here while we live. This is, this is the only goal that we're authorized to shoot for, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to help people on their journey to become like Jesus Christ. And this goal is so important to remember because it's why we do everything that we do. Uh, literary critic and philosopher C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, then all of the cathedrals, the clergy, the missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. See, see here's our journey to make disciples. And I believe this was the main concern of, of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the book of Romans back in the first century. But what we have learned from the structure of the book of Romans is that this tells us something about Paul's methodology in discipleship, namely that discipleship begins first with a clear understanding of the gospel. That's why Paul spent the first 11 chapters unpacking and expositing for us the gospel of grace. It's not accidental. It's part of his methodology. And so now we see in chapter 12, the question becomes, what does the gospel naturally lead to? Where does the gospel lead us? Because for Paul, it's not just theoretical, it's very practical. It leads to transformation. It leads to us becoming Christ-like disciples. And this is what he begins to unpack for us here in chapter 12. And so today, we want to ask and answer this critically important question. What does the journey of true Christian discipleship look like? Uh, if you were with a friend and they asked you that question, what does a disciple look like? What is true Christian disciple? How would you, discipleship, how would you answer that question? Uh, the answer, I think, is that a, a, a true Christian disciple has these three characteristics. A, a true Christian disciple is someone who's leveraging your spiritual gifts. A true Christian disciple is someone who's living in authentic community. And then finally, a true Christian disciple is someone who's loving, yes, even your enemies. Those are the three movements of today's message. Why don't we dig into movement number one as we pick it up with verse three. Paul begins like this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Let's pause right there. So here in these first few verses, Paul not only dismantles our individualistic mentality, but he begins to unpack this metaphor for the church as a body, just like the, the human body. In the church, there's one body with many parts. And he says he wants us to think about this. In the Greek, the word think is used here at least four different times in this small section. And the reason is because we as human beings have a natural tendency to think wrongly, uh, to either think too highly of ourselves or to think too lowly of ourselves. Now, you might say, well, why is that such an issue? And I think it stems all the way back from the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. And the answer to this question I found in a very famous book by Paul Tournier called The Strong and the Weak. He was a Swiss psychologist, a Christian psychologist. You don't need to read the book. I'll tell you exactly what it says. His main thesis is this. He says, everyone is desperately insecure. 
turn to your neighbor on the couch and say, you are desperately insecure. Now turn back to them and say, so are you, brother, so are you, sister. Now some people express this insecurity in different ways. There's two primarily different ways, really. Some people express this insecurity through portraying strength, right? They, they power up. You know, I'm strong. So, so for this person, it's all about their performance and it's all about their success. You know, catch me outside, how about that? This, this person is a strong personality. They create distance between them and others, but really it's just insecurity, now, other people, they, they, they deal with this insecurity and they express it by portraying not strength, but by portraying weakness. These are the people that are always the victim and they, you know, they're always being mistreated and they always need extra help and they're always feeling so unworthy. Paul Turnier says in that book that there's not a nickel's worth of difference between those two people. Everybody's desperately insecure. It's just some people express that insecurity through portrayed strength and other people through portrayed weakness. And I think we all know people on both sides, right? We all know people who think too highly of themselves. They just kind of strut in, you know. Hey, did you see my new shoes? You know, I just hate it. It's so busy this time in the Caribbean. I was at the Lexus dealership the other day, and gosh, they gave me such a hard time. You know that type of person. Always kind of looking down on other people, puffing themselves up. Maybe that's a little extreme, but you know what I found is sadly, even we in the church, even Christians, can think too highly of ourselves, but we do that in the form of using Bible verses and using theology. I remember I went to seminary with this guy, and in class, he would ask these questions of the professor, like, you know, Professor, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes and we see the viewpoint of the Kohelet and his worldview, how do you view that through the lens of progressive dispensationalism? Like, man, I'm just so impressed with your question, bro, right? You, you, you know, we can do this even in the context of the, the body of Christ. And we all know people who also think too lowly of themselves, right? I'm worthless, I can't do it. I know the Bible says God gave us spiritual gifts, but I really don't think I have one of those. I I have no value, there's really no hope for me. But get this, if you're thinking too highly of yourself or you're thinking too lowly of yourself, who are you thinking about all the time? Yourself. See, that's the trap. You're obsessed with you, and when you do that, you're missing the greatest commandment of focusing and loving on other people. Yeah, every once in a while I go bowling, not very often, like every couple of years, and, and I, I try my best, and I see that, the, you know, the, the bowlers on TV, they, somehow they make the ball curve, right? So, so I get up there, and, I, and I'm like trying to, trying to mimic this, and I'm trying to make it curve, but my problem is I, I make it curve too far to the left, and then it goes into the left gutter. Then my family laughs at me, and then the next time I get up to, 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 to bowl, I, I, I overcompensate, so I throw it a little farther to the right this time, but this time I've thrown it too far to the right, and now it's gone into the right gutter. And Now, how many pins do I get if it goes in the left gutter? Zero. And how many pins do I get if it goes in the right gutter? Zero. I, I lose both ways, right? See, friends, there's two ways to go wrong with our self-assessment. Paul says, you can think too high or you can think too low. You're both totally missing it. Instead, he says, I want you to think of yourself with sober judgment, with sober judgment. I want you to think accurately about yourself, not too high, not too low. So let me just pause and ask you, if you're watching, would you just ask yourself this personal question, which way do I lean in my personal life? Is there a spiritual course correction I need to make, even this week, to think more accurately about myself? 
You say, Pastor Dave, how do I do that? Well, you do that by recognizing that we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses and both our strengths and our weaknesses both serve a divine purpose. You say, what kind of purpose would my weaknesses serve? Well, your weaknesses serve to teach you to be dependent on other people. They teach you to be humble. They teach you that you don't have it all together. They teach you that you need to rely on other people and and there's a meekness that comes in our hearts when we remember that, that we're desperately needy. And our strengths, they, they teach us that the Bible has a very a wonderful plan for our lives. We have these spiritual gifts. That's the way we impact others. And so it's very important to think of ourselves with sober judgment. The reason is because you're part of a larger body and you have a role to fulfill in this body. Well, what role is it? Take a look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Here we see this list of at least seven of the different spiritual gifts given to believers. This is one of the four passages in the Bible that gives lists of spiritual gifts. Now, here's what a spiritual gift is. Uh, Let me give you a definition. A spiritual gift is a supernatural ability given by God to individuals that enable them to perform a function with ease and effectiveness. This is amazing. God says, I've deposited in each of you, every single Christian has a spiritual gift, and, and this is where God wants us to spend the lion's share of our time doing what we're gifted to do. I emphasize that because a lot of times we spend energy and time trying to work on our weaknesses, and there's nothing wrong with working on your weaknesses, but really the, 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 the lion's share of your time needs to be uh, serving to be the unique person God has made you to be. Everyone has a gift. Uh, Paul says, look, if you're gifted to teach, then what, what are you supposed to do? Take a look at that verse again. You're supposed to do what? Teach. If, you're, if, if it's encouragement, what should you do? Encourage. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leadership, then what should you do? Lead diligently and so forth. This is God's plan for your life, to leverage your spiritual gift for the good of others and for the glory of God. And notice, it says in verse six that there's no reason to get prideful about this gift. It's all by grace. It's been given to you by God for the good of others. Now, how many of you have ever asked this question, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Well, here's a very practical answer to that question. The Bible says you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand for you to do. Now, no one else on this planet can do that good work that he's fashioned you to do and uniquely equipped you to do. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you were in your mother's womb, you were being fashioned by God, the creator of the universe. And then we learned in the book of Romans that even when we left and fell away from him in our sin, he redeemed us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then by faith, he has repurposed our lives to make a difference for him. Wow. And so the application to this first section is is fairly straightforward, isn't it? How has God gifted you and how are you using it? Even during this pandemic, how has God gifted you and how are you using it? 
This week, I'll just give you one example. We, we, we saw one of the wives of one of our elders, Gina Muller. She, she has the gift of hospitality, and, and she loves to do baking. And she kind of set up her kitchen to just do this massive amount of baking this week and, and spread love to many, many different people during this pandemic. And so that's a way to even use your gift even during, during a crisis. How has God gifted you, though, and how are you using it? Because the journey of Christian discipleship involves leveraging your spiritual gifts, which leads us to movement number two. And true Christian discipleship also means living in authentic community. Now, this is a personal passion uh, of mine, and, 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 and I wonder if you've ever thought about this question. Do you, ever, do you ever wonder why so many Christians get spiritually stuck? I'm talking about people who are genuinely professors of the Lord Jesus. They know the word of God. They, they pray, but yet there's some area in their life where they're just not showing any progress there's this major character flaw, there's an outburst of anger, uh, there's an eating disorder, or they're, they're, there's a little problem viewing inappropriate material. There's just some area where they're stuck. Why is that? Uh, the reason I've discovered is there, there are certain parts of our lives that are never going to change or grow without a very specific environment. That environment is called living in authentic community. Now, what does that look like? The answer, I think, is found in Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Now, brace yourself, because these verses come across in the form of a list, and so this is going to be a lot. He says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Okay, now let's breathe out. Here in these four verses are 13 different participles or commands, and at first glance, it looks like Paul's just throwing out random thoughts as he jumps quickly from one idea or the other, but you can see how they all fit together under this big theme of living in authentic community. There's a guy who went to the seminary I went to, Chip Ingram, who summarizes this section of scripture really clearly. He says this, authentic community happens when the real you meets real needs for the right reason in the right way. Authentic community happens when the real you meets real needs for the right reason in the right way. Look, look back at that section with me and see if you can follow what he said there with the text. Verse 9 talks about the real you. Verse 10 talks about meeting real needs. Verse 11 talks about doing that for the right reason. And then verses 12 and 13 talk about doing that in the right way. Now, I don't have time to explain every single phrase here. I encourage you to unpack them on your own. But let me just explain that first phrase in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Literally, in the Greek, the word sincere there means, means to, to wear a mask. Paul actually grabbed that word from the Greek theater when actors would would play like five or six different roles all in the same play by wearing these masks. Paul says, in the church, make sure you take the mask off. You know, it's kind of funny. It's, a, it's something that we've all been wearing during this pandemic, right? All of us are walking around wearing these, wearing these masks all the time. And, and Pastor Bob wrote a blog post about this saying, this is a physical reminder of the fact that spiritually, a lot of us wear masks that are more invisible, but we wear them all the time, don't we? For example, we're really good at pretending we, we're much better at claiming we love someone than we actually are at sincerely loving them. 
Some of us are very skilled in appearing to be moved with compassion when we hear someone's needs, but we really feel nothing inside and we definitely don't do anything about it. We learn to speak kindly, though. We learn to appear to take an interest, but we really couldn't care any less. We smile. We even tell someone that we'll pray for them, but then we forget to pray for them. Paul says, stop. Let your love be from the real you. No meaningless platitudes, no phony pleasantries, not pretend. No, sincerely love. Why? Because transformation happens in the context of authentic community. The real you, not a projection of yourself. I think about a guy I know named Andy. That's not his real name. But Andy struggled with an addiction in viewing inappropriate material for years. One day he found a group that he could attend to deal with this through a local ministry called Pause Ministries. And he said, at first I was just terrified to even go to this group. But he said, I went and then the real me showed up. For the first time in my life, he said, I I met other guys who had this same struggle too and who said to me, you know, me too. I knew for the first time, he says, I wasn't alone. And then he says, I started to get hope because I, the shame started to be broken. I saw other guys who had victory in this area, and, and they gave me this, this environment in this non-judgmental context. They shared about how and how he also could break this power of this addiction in his life through the power of Christ and in the context of authentic community. What happened? The real person showed up with real struggles and met guys who would meet real needs in a real way. That's living in authentic community. And so let me just ask you a very important question as we finish up this second movement here. Do you have a community of people in your life like that who really know you, the real you? If not, what is a step that you could take toward community in your life? Maybe you could join one of our small groups here. You can find those on our website. Or maybe you're already in one of those groups and it's time for you to go a little deeper and take the mask off and show others the real you in that safe environment. Uh, One way to do that is to take your small group and study these verses together as a group. I, I don't have time to go through all of these together, but this would be a great discussion just to look at these phrases and talk with your group about how do we live out verses 9 through 13 in our small group together. That's so important. Why? Because true Christian discipleship involves leveraging your spiritual gifts and living in authentic community. And this leads us to the third movement. It also involves loving your enemies. Now, this last characteristic is really radical. Uh, If we have a hard time with the first two, we're really going to have a hard time with this next one. Uh, As next, Paul's going to ask us to go to a place that, frankly, we don't want to go. And so before we look at this third and final section of Romans chapter 12, I just want to invite you to answer this question in your mind. Of all the people in your life that, that have hurt you the most, who is it that comes to your mind today? You got that in your mind? Just think of that person. I'm I'm not trying to pull off the scab. I just want to share with you some of the most radical words in the whole Bible. Paul says this in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, 
live at peace with everyone. Wow. This journey of becoming a true Christian disciple is not just hard. It's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. In this context, Paul is talking about people who may literally have been persecuting these brothers or sisters. That's the context. He's talking about how to relate to people who socially ostracize you. Perhaps because of their faith, because they're followers of Christ, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bless them. The word bless there in verse 14 means you desire that things go well with them in their life. You desire their salvation. You desire that God would add his favor upon them. And not only that, he says, I want you to also identify with them. Notice he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Guys, the context here is not your friends. This is the boss that treats you unfairly or terribly. He's talking about the father or mother or friend who's betrayed you. He's talking about your spouse who left you. And then he says that person later on in their lives, when they get cancer or when they're in an accident or they face difficulties, I want you by the power of the Holy Spirit to weep with those who weep. Yes, even those who are your enemies. You identify with them. Now this is so counterintuitive. It's so bizarre really when you choose to do this, but it is the path of Christian discipleship because it's the path toward the possibility of peace. Paul says, be careful, meaning take thought as far as it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I know true reconciliation takes two parties, but Paul says, make sure on your end, you've done everything possible as far as it depends upon you to make sure the problem is not with you. Make sure you've done your work on your side to pursue them, to make it right, and to even forgive them. Now, I know this is very difficult, but notice he says, don't be conceited. Do you see that? I think that's part of the key here for unlocking how we even would go about following the prescription in this passage. Don't be prideful. See, you cannot truly forgive someone, you cannot truly love your enemy if you feel morally superior to them. This takes humility. If you're ever gonna be able to bless your enemies, you have to do so from a low position, not thinking too highly of yourself. You're saying, no, 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 wait, I'm a sinner too. There but by the grace of God, so too go, go I. I could have fallen into that trap too. In fact, I may have many times. So we can do these things. We can pursue our enemies. We can love them. We can forgive them in view of God's mercy. Remember Romans 12, 1. Because like them, we know we needed mercy too. That's the power of the gospel and why it leads to life transformation. It's the path towards real freedom, friends, not just for them, but also for you. I'm reminded of the words of Dr. Martin Luther King who said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Now, I'm not saying every single relationship in your life should be restored immediately. I know sometimes there's cases where you need to grant forgiveness on your side, then it takes time for trust to be restored and for full reconciliation to take place. And I get that, that calls for wisdom. But Paul says, on your end, make sure you are following the Lord. A wise mentor of mine once said, reconciliation is a two-way street, Dave. Just make sure you clean your side of the street. That's a good word. Paul goes on to say this in verse 19. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't retaliate. 
Why, why, why not? Well, first of all, Paul says you're going to make it worse. You know, when we go tit for tat, when we repay evil for evil, imagine, if you will, there's like a fire going, that's the conflict, and instead of throwing water on the fire, uh, we're actually throwing gasoline on the fire and making everything a lot worse. But second of all, the bigger reason why we shouldn't do that is because it usurps God's role as judge. When we take our revenge, we're standing between God and his beloved. Now, I know some of you are saying, no, I would, I would never do that. I would never take revenge. I'm a gentle person. But sometimes I've noticed that even Christians will do this in more passive-aggressive ways. We just despise them in our hearts or, or we slander them or gossip about them or we bring up a prayer request that really mischaracterizes them or we use our position against them or we leverage our relationships and make triangles with them or, 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 or any other creative ways we can be passive aggressive and really what that is is that's also a revengeful desire to hurt that person back paul says don't do that don't take revenge trust god that he's got your back here it's hard sometimes because we think well if i'm not looking out for me if i'm not looking out for my own welfare then who is well uh, pastor chuck swindoll says it well he says it's a faith question do we really believe God is in control and that he will preserve us through danger, including enemy attacks? How we answer that question will determine whether cursing or blessing falls from our lips. Friends, when we don't take revenge, this is saying, God, I'm gonna put this in your hands. I'm gonna release this to you. Why? Because I believe you're just, I believe you're fair, and one day the scales will be absolutely perfectly balanced and I can release that hurt, that wound, into your hands because you know all and I can breathe out. Now, friends, when it says I will repay, I take that to mean also God saying to you, the victim, I will repay you for your pain. This takes trust in God. This is hard, but this is what we are called to do. Friends, some of you out there today, you're listening to this and it's time for you to make a decision to forgive someone. And you're gonna enter into a process where you're making the decision, but then emotionally it's gonna be difficult for a time, and you need to start praying for them and praying that God would bless them. Now, if you're like me on a personal note, I've, you know, I've been through this kind of thing. When I start praying for that person, at first my prayers sound like David in the Psalms, when, the imprecatory Psalms, when he's like, God, would you smite my <laughs> enemies, that kind of thing. And, and when I began to pray like that, God said, well, Dave, that's not what I mean when I say you know, bless them. And over time, as you pray for them, what I, what I decided to do with one particular individual in my life is every time I would take the Lord's Supper, I would say a prayer for that person, asking God to bless them. And you know you've gotten there over time when you can just spontaneously rejoice at God's blessing in their life and you realize you're finally free. That's true freedom. And some of you are ready to be set free today. And you can move on to this next radical and bold step as Paul finishes chapter 12 by saying this. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This heap burning coals on their head thing, this, this is kind of weird, right? This was an ancient Egyptian ritual where if they had done something wrong they would take a fire with coals and a towel and they would walk around the village with these coals on top of their head it was a symbol a sign of contrition saying i'm burning these bad thoughts out of my mind and this is an idiom that described compunction this is the outcome that you're hoping for 
This may come about if you will choose to act in bold and radical love. Now, friends, this is not a complicated concept, but it is a very difficult thing to do. When you can love them in this way, though, Paul says you might see something amazing and wonderful that you never even dreamed of because God can do it. I'm reminded of an Old Testament story that illustrates this principle really well. It involves King David. You might remember before he was king, uh, he was being attacked and pursued by King Saul. King Saul was jealous of him and King Saul hated him. King Saul threw spears at him and so David was on the run and And somehow during that process, him and David ended up in the same dark cave, and Saul didn't realize that. And David had a chance to attack him, his enemy, and to kill him, but David chose not to. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed, and so instead what he did was he just ripped off a piece of Saul's garment. And then later on in the narrative in the book of 1 Samuel, it tells us that David ends up on the other side of this river, this other side of this ravine, where Saul's on one side and David's on the other side, And David calls for Saul and says, Saul, what what have I done to you? What have I ever done? I, I could have killed you. Look here, here's a piece of your garment. I could have taken you out, but I chose not to. If if I've done anything wrong, Saul, David says, let God be be my judge. And after David says that, the text says that Saul, all of a sudden when he saw David and he saw his robe, Saul began to weep uncontrollably and Saul began to weep bitterly. It's like in a flash, there's there's this moment here where he realizes all the evil that he had done and things that he had repressed, and there was all this denial, and there's even some demonic stuff that was happening there. And Saul just cries out through tears, David, you're more righteous than I. Friends, that's the power of the people of God, trusting God to bring about perfect justice. Friends, can you just imagine if that was us? Can you imagine a church full of Christians that behaved this way, who really believed that we could overcome evil with good? What if we really behaved like this? What if we really acted in bold and radical love toward even our enemies? I submit to you this morning that people would see us and people would look at us and go, why do you do that? Who does that? Why would you treat them like that? Don't you know what they've done to you? Don't you know how, how wrong they've treated you? And we would just simply respond and say, Can I just read to you Romans 5, 8? He says, I serve a God. And it says this, he demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and we serve him and we live for him and we want to imitate him and he's transforming us into his very image. Can you imagine if we took this passage seriously? Can you imagine a church full of believers like this? Let's be that church. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes for one final song. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of true Christian discipleship. Thank you for making all of this possible. Thank you, Jesus, that in an encounter with you, we can learn to have an accurate view of ourselves because we know who we are in Christ, and so our view is not too low and our view is not too high, because we know from where we came and our sin, but we also know how much Christ loves us and how he's given us a work to do through his spiritual gifting. And help us, God, to move toward an authentic community in our own lives. Help us to open up with the real you. 
the real us. Help us to be real with each other. Help us to remember that we have nothing to fear anymore and nothing to shame because of the beauty of the gospel and where it takes us. God, you've accepted us, and now we can accept one another and grow together. And thank you most of all for showing us how to treat even our enemies with this bold and radical love. For we remember, Lord, that that is how you treated us. When we were your enemies, you loved us. So take us today where the gospel leads us. Take us to be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.